Hey y'all, thanks for joining us today for episode six of Saving Face, a podcast dedicated to breaking the stigma around sharing hard to tell stories. I'm Ida and I'll be your host for the series. For our first season, we're asking eight creatives to dive into some of their most difficult personal experiences, many of which are often rooted in trauma or shame. Throughout each episode, we'll explore the ways these experiences have impacted our guest's work and give them the space to reframe these stories as moments of growth, forgiveness, and love. Today, we'll be speaking with Angel. My name is Angel, and I go by the name of Kronika, which is my DJ name. I am born and raised in the Philippines. Now based in Los Angeles, Angel's part of a music platform and collective called Selection. Her mixes are bright and energetic, flowing through transitions in different styles so seamlessly, you sometimes don't even notice it's already a different song. Music has been a part of Angel's life forever, but she didn't really start getting into DJing until she moved to the States in 2003. When we talk about DJing, personally, I imagine someone who uses the turntables. I guess back in the Philippines, um, I don't know if you can call me a DJ because I didn't have turntables, but I would always be, you know, providing the vibes, the music, you know, for my family, um, family gatherings. Every time me and my friends hang out, I'm, I remember like I'm always, you know, the I'm always in charge uh, with the music. Music is a massive part of Filipinx culture, and it's something that Angel recounts fondly. If you ever go to my country, you will quickly realize that music is everywhere. Everywhere you go, people are playing music. Everywhere you go, there's someone singing in the corner. It, we just live and breathe music because music is healing, you know, and living in third world country, I feel like music really helps people to get through you know, their everyday life. Growing up with her dad in a two-bedroom apartment, Angel found herself constantly surrounded by sound. I remember his friends would always come over and they would just jam out in the living room, play music, all kinds of music. Her dad was a musician and he made sure to always fill their home with sound, leaving the stereo on constantly in their house. It ultimately helped develop Angel's curiosity for music, inspiring her to ask questions about genres or artists. But for the two of them, music also did so much more. It filled the empty space left by her mom's absence. I guess, like some people, I grew up in a broken family, and my mom... I, I just, my only uh, memories of my mom was of her visiting me at my, my dad's apartment. But at the same time, there were times when, she, you know, she just won't be allowed inside. It, it's their own drama that I didn't really understand because mm. no one was really telling me what's going on. You know, usually, you know, when we were... Let's face it, when we were kids, no one really, you know, ever tries to explain what's, what's happening around us mm -hmm. to us. That, that was like the, the start of my childhood memory. 
being raised by my father alone because my mom left and started a, a new family. Mm. And later on, me and my dad, we moved with my grandma uh, on my dad's side. So all three of us, we lived together in my grandma's house. I, I really think that my it's my dad who had the most musical influence um, on me. Like thinking about, you know, our everyday life back then, our stereo, our radio was always on. Mm. First thing in the morning and till late night. So it was his influence. I know I owe, I owe it all to, to him as well. For Angel, music held a multidimensional kind of healing. It tapped into a larger movement within her Filipinx community, but it also brought her and her dad together to fill the silence of loss, to recover and build from the absence of her mother throughout her childhood, a dynamic that impacted Angel deeply. We didn't really... Um, have this close mother-daughter relationship mm-hmm. because I feel like ever since she, you know, had another kid after me, I feel like I was completely forgotten. Not completely forgotten. That's so dramatic. But sometimes it does. Uh, it, yeah, it did feel like uh, I was completely forgotten in that she only had one kid. Like I was set aside. So when she went off to start a new family with this, with my stepdad, my stepdad is a rich man. He's like the CEO of a cable company Mm. and they moved to a new house, a big house in this, you know, rich neighborhood. I remember when I would visit my mom and her friends would be over and she would have me hide because she didn't want her friends to think that she already had a kid from another man mm, That's prior to my stepdad. That's so hard, right? I know. It is. Um, I remember the first time she told me that. You know that feeling? It's like... Why, mom? okay I understand you know what this was so long ago and I, I don't know why I'm still crying I thought I thought you know I I thought I thought it was I I thought I've already accepted and moved forward moved forward and forgotten and set it aside and forgiven and I don't know why I'm so crying. So what does that mean? Because I just remember the, the feeling. I just remember the feeling when she would ask me to call her um Tita. Tita is like auntie. Mm. And I never want to call her that. Like I never did. Um I would I would just go up to the room and cry and you know and just sulk like I'm trying to ask like I have I had all these thoughts in my head and I'm wondering why why she doesn't want me to call her mom I remember that feeling because I I feel like I I hated her for that and she made it look like she made it seem like it was just nothing right 
Right. Like she didn't even acknowledge the weight of it. Because I was just a kid. Exactly. Like you're so young. So you know how you know how sometimes we treat kids like, oh, they're just kids. But no, we feel too. Mm-hmm. Right? Completely. Um, and yeah, I feel like that's always been the case with me. I feel like um, there's so many feelings that I have put to the side and have normalized, you know, because I didn't have any other choice. Mm-hmm. Um and like doing this podcast right now, like I'm 46. Um, I was what six, seven years old then, you know. And I'm thinking, why I'm still crying? Like I, because I never really talked about this to anyone mm. before. I mean, everything's good now. My, you know, I, I also didn't want to talk about it because I didn't want people to think that my mom was bad. I think that's that's part of like the multiplicity of it, right? Like just because your relationship is good now doesn't invalidate the fact that it was really, really hard when you were young. It, I think it's amazing that like you guys have built and moved past that point and that you were able to forgive and heal together and grow. But like that doesn't mean, you know, that like it doesn't invalidate all of this and like what you're feeling and the weight of it yeah and i am grateful for this podcast honestly because it it does make you realize that you are not alone and that there are also other people who you know experience probably the same experiences that you have so yeah because i feel like for a long time i always beat myself for all the mistakes and my shortcomings in the past not realizing that maybe it was because you know of my traumas I didn't even know the word trauma honestly until I was older I mean it's not talked about in Asian cultures like I think we talk about it a lot more in Asian American culture because it's in the American culture to discuss things like this or discuss things openly but again it goes back to like saving face and like not wanting to discuss things that are shameful or like the pain that like is so silent and constant. Like that's one of the reasons why I think when you were telling the story about your dad and him being in the house and playing music and uh, it's just you guys and your grandma and like not letting your mom come in. And like, I felt that, do you know what I mean? Like I understood the weight of that because of all that was unsaid there. And I think that's, that's Asian culture also, right? It is. It's tough, man. Like, especially our parents, they were raised tough as hell. And that's then they're projecting it to us. Right, right. And in a way, I feel like it did help. Right? Mm. What do you mean? I mean, I feel like I've gotten to not be too sensitive. You know, because I feel, I guess, yeah, I've felt, you know, a lot of disappointments from a younger age, a lot of hurt from a younger age. So growing up, it just probably taught me to be, to toughen up, you know, emotionally mm-hmm. as well. Because you're already used, not to 
you know, say that it's right to just get used to all that hurt. But yeah, it, it is what happened. And I feel like, yeah, it, the way we see our parents, right? We shouldn't really see them as parental entity, like perfect parents, because they back then they didn't even know what they were doing as well. They were, they were you know, they were all just trying to make it up as they go along. And I, that I just realized later on when I got older that we shouldn't always expect the best from our parents because they're not perfect as well. Because right. my mom's good to me now. You know, she loves me now. Well, not really. Still. <laughs> my, my brother's still her favorite. I've never gotten a happy birthday post on Facebook. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, it might sound... It's okay. It might, sorry, it might sound shallow. But, but I've never gotten that. Ever. And my mom is probably obli- oblivious to, to this right now that I even feel like this. She doesn't even know how. Most like she, she doesn't even know. But that's the thing. Mm-hmm. Why would to not care to know you know because everyone thinks you know right away oh it's okay angel's okay she wouldn't mind that's a cons of being sometimes being too kind you know people Mm. tend to forget that you do have feelings too well i think that like i genuinely think that like all of that comes together and just makes you a person and there's nothing wrong with like being a complete person, right? Like, and a lot of it is cultural. Like, I think the deference of being like, oh, I'm fine. It's okay. Don't worry about it. That I think that a lot of that is cultural and a lot of that's internalized and taught to us over generations. Like it's ancestral in some ways, right? But I, I think that like a lot of people struggle with that. The aspect of being expected to be strong or being expected to do everything and emotionally labor and like none of it really goes acknowledged especially for women and especially for women of color I think that is just ingrained in our culture you know and so much of it comes down to that I feel like we've just been taught to live with it now decades later Angel has started rebuilding a relationship with her mother despite the fact that she's lived in the U.S. for the last 18 years Unfortunately, though, shortly after Angel moved here in 2003, things shifted drastically in her family dynamic. Her grandma passed away in September that same year, and her dad, who she was extremely close to, passed away shortly after in December. At the time, she had just left behind the Philippines for a whole new world, but Angel didn't anticipate that she wouldn't be able to go back home for something that mattered so much to her so soon. I had met my first husband in the year 2000, he was half Filipino, half uh, white. And I guess a year later, a couple years later, which was 2002, that's when we got married in the Philippines. He was actually just visiting from the, the States. And he said he didn't want to come back without me. 
Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, that's how um, I got here because you know we got married and I started a new life with him in the U.S. I left my family, my home country. Coming into America was a whole different world for me because mm-hmm. Philippines was all I knew back then. After some time, though, it was clear that Angel's new life wasn't quite what she imagined. A couple years later, we got divorced. I'm not saying it was his fault or my fault. Um, I feel like at that time, I was still as corny as it may sound, trying to find myself. Living in a new country she had recently immigrated to, and without her family or support network around, Angel tells me that she felt really alone and found it hard to find community throughout the process. Did you feel supported and kind of held by your own community in that time when you were going through the divorce and separation? Did you feel like um, your people were there for you? Honestly, I really felt like I was just on my own. Like, Mm. there's no one else. I did have a friend who was kind enough to take me in after that incident when I left our apartment, my apartment with my ex-husband. And yeah, so my transitioning, not easy, but, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't trying to leave yet and I already had a place to stay. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. at that time, my mind was pretty cloudy. I don't know why I didn't, you know, stop and think what I was doing then. Mm. I feel like things were happening too fast and I was just going with the flow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at the same time, I was working and he wasn't. So I think there's a lot of factors that contributed to, you know, pushing me to just be on my own. Eventually, she found her footing and came into her own even meeting her current husband, who Angel's now been married to for 16 years. But beyond emotions, Angel's divorce left a lasting imprint on her life. It endangered her immigration status, something she still struggles with today. U.S. immigration is very, very complicated. Like, you can't just get what you want or, yeah, whatever you applied for. You you don't just get approved easily like that. My visa with my first husband um, was only good for like a couple years. So technically, when that expires, you have to go back to your home country before Mm. it expires. And with U.S. immigration, they're very strict. And Mm. it's like even if you're just an hour (laughs) or a day expired, like a day late, on renewing like they will uh give you reparations like ban you for 10 years wow that's crazy yeah before you're able to come back into the into the states into the u.s at that time i didn't have a choice i had to stay even though my visa was expired so for a long time I tried to fix my uh, my status because I then married my second husband, who who is also a U.S. citizen. But since the rules are complicated, we couldn't really fix it then until 
you know, I found this this lawyer who suggested that we apply for something else that might get approved that might eventually, you know, allow me to get a green card, a permanent resident, aka mm-hmm. permanent resident card. Um, so that's what I've been trying to, you know, uh, acquire for the longest time now. And I'm still waiting. It's been, yeah, it's been what, 18 years. And I'm still just hanging on to my work permit. That's the only proof of eligibility for me to, to be able to stay here. But like, I have to always like, what do you call this? Renew. Mm-hmm. You know, but I'm still not a, like a resident. Um, I I really need a, a resident card in order for me to at least travel abroad and come be able to come back. Like I'm not even asking for much, you know. When Angel thinks about immigration, there's one experience in particular that still sits really heavily with her. There was one time when I was DJing in San Diego. And I went to TJ with, you know, my friends, my other DJ friends. Um, So I didn't know TJ was a little town in Mexico. I thought it was just, you know. In the States In the States. So there I was just carelessly, you know, gallivanting with my friends like I was in the same car with them and they took they took me to TJ and that's when the nightmare happened because as we were heading back um we cro- we passed the border and they checked you know our documents and I didn't have anything to show them oh yeah did you you didn't have your visa with you or did it not matter? I mean, it was it was expired. Mm, I see. It was still expired then. They handcuffed me and detained me at the border for four days. Oh, my goodness. It was an, a real nightmare, you know, I, that I wanted to snap out of yeah. because I didn't realize the, you know, the worst was about to happen because just because of my carelessness you know I wasn't thinking I didn't even ask like where's TJ you know I just happily went right you know with my friend because I just wanted to yeah um what year was this but by the way this was 2016 in May this is a week after my birthday even and as we were heading back you know that's when um I got detained at the border for four days and my experience there. I've this is something I can already talk about. I feel like like right now I'm okay talking about it. I'm not even crying anymore because for me it was an experience that was meant to happen. Hmm. I feel like I learned so much from from that experience because it changed me. Into and and made me become a better person. Um, and made me realize that none of the material stuff mattered. None of the cool shit mattered. The cool online shit right. mattered. 
what mattered most to me is, you know, my husband just, he was all, honestly, I cared about. He was all I, I was worrying about because he didn't deserve that. I, I feel like he didn't deserve to feel that way because he was, he broke down, you know, he was depressed. You know, I was in the tent. By the way, I was transferred into a detention center for another four months after four days in the border. So, yeah, so the, the whole four, four months that I was away from home, um, he was just, you know, in deep depression and he was just sick mm. uh, because... You know, that because I was taken away from him, you know, like all of a sudden, um, it was pretty, pretty heavy, yeah, and pretty serious. Well, because it was so unexpected, too. Like, you went for exactly. a night and then suddenly you couldn't go home for four months, right? Exactly, it's like being kidnapped, it's like the, I was put in the box pretty much after I was handcuffed. They took me to this room where I had to remove everything, jewelry, phone. Um, all I had was the clothes on my back and my shoes. Um, you can't even wear earrings or a hair tie. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Because uh, anything that you can use to hurt anybody, they will take it away from you. Like, Because people can just grab a hair tie and... I don't know, strangle mm, <laughs> and I see. tie them together and like use it as a rope to strangle someone. I don't know, but yeah. So after that, um, I was in this waiting room um, with, I'd say about 40 people of mostly uh, Spanish and African race in the room. These are refugees that don't really speak English. So um, at that moment, I had nobody to talk to. I couldn't really communicate. I was We were all, all on the floor just sitting down. And mind you, um, I hadn't slept yet because uh, we were heading back from TJ back to San Diego around 7 a.m. And then... I got detained around 8 or 9 so I was just in the waiting room on the floor waiting I was shocked like I didn't I couldn't even cry because I, I was just hating myself I was just you know in my head I just wanted to slap my face and you know, ask why I did this. Like, why was I that careless? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, it's like all that regret. Um, because I knew it was going to be serious, you know. Um, so after that, uh, at like around 6 p.m., that's when they called my name. And that's when I got to tell my story. You know, I told them that I am married to a U.S. citizen, but I'm still fixing my papers but you know at the border they train people to just you know be rude to you and just treat you like shit like you don't matter you're not 
you're not you're nothing to them so like the these people that work at the border um i feel like yeah they were trained to be to work with no heart at all so um yeah they after that they said they were gonna deport me and they made me sign some papers um i didn't know that i wasn't supposed to sign them so i feel like i was you know i did that under duress right right you know i was just I had no clue that I wasn't supposed to. Um, I should have said, you know, I, I need to talk to my lawyer first. I didn't know what to say, you know, because everything just happened, you know. Um, everything caught me off, off guard, obviously. Um, so after that, they threw me in a cell. So when they opened the cell, it, it was more of like a room with no windows, right? There was a door with like a small, just a small like people, glass yeah people, yeah there you go um when they opened the door there were probably 12 ladies sitting on the floor it's just a small room um so there were like ladies sitting on the floor and yeah when the door um closed behind me that it was a moment where i was like oh my god like what's next yeah. you know so like this is i couldn't really even happening. talk this is really happening and you can tell like the the people um they're really not from the u.s they're from mexico and no one really spoke good english except for one thank goodness there was one of them who could speak basic english so she pretty much was my was my translator to everyone so yeah, for four straight days, I was just in that room, not knowing what time it is, not knowing what's going to happen next. Um, the lights in that room um, were fluorescent lights, and it was on 24-7. Oh my God. And, and not only that, like the AC was so cold. Mm. Like it was so, the temperature was so low. It's like they purposely load the temperature that way. I guess people don't smell. <laughs> oh, I see. Cause or don't sweat because mm -hmm. there's a lot of people, you know, in each. So, yeah, it was horrible. But actually, I couldn't care less about the conditions inside. All I was worried about was, you know, my husband. Right, because he was gonna worry. Like, he's panicking. He's worrying, and. I don't know how to explain to you, but me and my husband were like one entity. Like if we're just one person. We're so connected. We're we're I don't even have to talk. We just make sound effects with our <laughs> mouths and we could understand each other already. Like we're that connect deeply, deeply connected. So for me to be taken away from him just like that, it's like yeah. And and, and just that fear of not knowing what's gonna happen next because that's how that's that's really how they would make you feel like like you know they're just gonna throw you in the garbage afterwards you know it's it's really that feeling much like what we hear about in the news 
Angel's experience at the detention center was extremely traumatizing. Her living spaces were cramped, her conditions were inhumane, and the officials didn't communicate with her almost at all about anything. After four days, I thought I was gonna get on a plane and get deported. Unfortunate, I mean, fortunately, that wasn't the process. Um, so the next step was uh, them taking us to a detention center. And that's where you stay while you work, you know, work your papers, work your documents. Um, so that uh, time uh, I was at the detention center, um, I had a memorable uh, experience as well because I was with about a hundred ladies from different parts of the world. It's like living in one facility with a hundred other ladies mm-hmm. who, you know, make you not feel alone. Right, right. So I was thankful that there were that much people like that support. Yeah, it was about the community of it. Exactly, and the sisterhood. Angel eventually got out after four months, after her lawyer adjusted her case to one of seeking asylum. I found out that everyone was applying for asylum. Mm. Have you heard about asylum? It's when, yeah, right, so... Like some people from Syria, they don't want to come back to their home country because they fear of getting persecuted because there's a lot of wars in Syria. So they seek for they seek for asylum in in the United States. And when the immigration U.S. immigration finds out that yeah you are credible uh, for an asylum, then they give it to you. Mm. So I did apply for that, and luckily, everything worked out. And um, actually, I did have a strong case because I was married to a, I am married to a U.S. citizen, so I, I do have the right to stay um, in the U.S. It just it's just a matter of me getting the right documents and going through the whole process that's really what they just want you to do just go through the process don't come here illegal don't stay here illegally and that's what I've been doing I feel like I've been trying to fight for my right to stay here for the longest time and I'm I still am like with with the with the amount of money and time and effort that we've given, I really hope that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Right. Because just last year, my application got denied. Oh no! So um, after right after the the election when Biden won, and I think it was Trump's last day. I feel like sent out an order to deny everybody, you know, like his one last hurrah mm-hmm. right before he leaves um, his administration. Um, and I was part of of that denial. Um, I, I got the letter and 
yeah i was like why does this keep happening to me when I, all i ever do is try to make things right you know what right, i mean right i get that so my lawyer did tell me that we can uh reopen my case we can file and that's that's what we did we filed to reopen my case and i'm waiting again for their answer well i think it's so frustrating because it's been literally it's like literally a decades long experience at this point where you're constantly like really like not comfortable because you you can't say that like you're a permanent residence for instance even though you've been here for almost 20 years like it, it doesn't make any sense exactly it doesn't make any sense and like i've been paying my tax taxes ever since like um i've been a good you know citizen right you know say the least like um i don't have any criminal records think i mean god forbid but i i really just want to stay hopeful because hopeful is the only choice i have you know i mean i can't give up now yeah i think i mean i think that's definitely like the right attitude and it is something like you have to hold on to because otherwise like it it feels bleak you know so yeah. i think that's definitely like the right thing to lean into um especially in your case but I think it is so crazy, like hearing your story about this and just within my family, knowing the people that have struggled with immigration, I think it's so crazy, like how hard this country makes it to stay, even when you have a good reason, even when you haven't done anything wrong or yeah. you're supposed to be here, it it doesn't matter. It's it's just so inhumane, right? It's so inhumane. I, I don't get it. I I don't get how this small piece of card could just you know hinder you from being with your family because i haven't been able to visit my mom and my relatives back home in the philippines because of that and my mom's you know getting older now she's like 68 or 69 already and it's just been so long Angel couldn't return to the Philippines when her grandma or father passed away in 2003. And she hasn't gone back home once in the 18 years since. One thing, too, about this whole um, immigration thing, some people I know don't feel comfortable talking about, you know, their immigration situation, their immigration status. Um, but I think we should talk about we should talk about it like how i'm doing it right now because honestly i have nothing to be you know ashamed about i'm doing my part here you know i've been trying to go through the process so i shouldn't be ashamed to talk about it like even when that denial letter <clears throat> came in the mail i just posted it on my story because um, I, f I feel like it's a very important part of my story that people should know of. As a DJ, I haven't been able to travel overseas. You know, every time my, you know, my, my team goes on tour, you know, I'm always just left behind. And for so long, I've just 
you know, live with that. Right. Definitely. I mean, yeah, I think that people should definitely be open about these things because the more that we understand how much these issues or patterns like impact people, the more that we feel compelled to be more understanding, to care, to take action. And I think like that's definitely like one of the goals of something like Saving Face, right, is to create spaces where we like foster that humanity and understanding and hopefully, you know, the people listening, like they understand like just how just how hard this stuff is. So of course, thank you so much for sharing. <laughs> no, I was thinking, you know, like who would even want to hear my story? But at the same time, I was like, no, you know what? I, I'll, I'll share my story. And, you know, maybe what, five, 10 years from now, someone listens to your podcast and it might help, you know? Definitely. Well, thank you so much for being here today and being so open and talking to us about so much. I really appreciated it. Thank you so much, too, for your time and your effort and everything. Thank you for just this. Thank you for everything. I appreciate this. Thanks for joining us today for Episode 6 of Saving Face. I'm Ida, and I hope that you will join us again next week. Until then, take care. Saving Face is brought to you by Newfly Magazine. We'd like to give a special thank you and shout out to Matt Hong, our audio engineer, for making the soundscape for each of our episodes. I'd also like to thank Belinda Mann, who's helped co-produce the series with me, as well as Daniel Fung, who has put together our cover art for each episode. And of course, we'd like to thank our wonderful guests for having the courage and openness to share their stories. Thank you so much for listening.